Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is part two of my conversation with Will Kostakis. Because you see, every now and then, these author conversations that I have, they they just range widely and go a little long. So I've split this one up into two parts for ease of listening. If you haven't checked out part one, I really recommend that you go back and get a little bit of background into Will's Monuments series. Will Kostakis is an award-winning author of young adult fiction. Beginning with his first novel, Loathing Lola, which was published when he was 19, Will has explored themes of loss, grief, and queer adolescent experience. On this great conversation that you're listening to part two of, he is discussing his fantasy series, Monuments and Rebel Gods. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER. Now, 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. I want to acknowledge those traditional owners, pay my respects to their ongoing connections to those lands, stolen lands. Final Draft and the Great Conversations podcast is about books, writing and literary culture. I always want to share these books with people. So if you love them, if you want to share them too, give us a rating, leave a comment, say hi, tell someone just in conversation about our podcast so that they can discover these books too. Today on the show, we're going back and finding out more about Connor, Sally and Lockie. They should just be ordinary teens. They should just be skipping class. They should just be dealing with their friends. But there's this pantheon of ancient gods. They're known as the monuments. They're hidden across schools around Sydney. And Sally, Connor and Lockie have to race to find the monuments, deal with their power and confront hounds, rebel gods, And really, that bigger question of what is your destiny and who controls the power? In part two today, we are going to be delving, Will and I, a little bit more into the adolescent experience and representing that experience. And Will's also going to deal with the idea of writing a series, what unique pressures it brings when you are actually crafting a sequel. Join me as we discover Will Kostakis' Rebel Gods. I mean, it's not like the, these books are uh, bereft of, of trauma. I mean, there is plenty of trauma that goes on in an adolescent life. And, oh, completely. Yeah. <laughs> throughout, throughout, I felt this overriding concern with friendships. You mentioned there the Monuments begins with Connor having a friend divorce, and that occupies his thoughts. Um, mm-hmm. Sally is terribly emotionally scarred by the people that she's lost. It makes her both distant, and I saw her at times she's very controlling of Connor and their developing relationship. Mm-hmm. She kind of... I mean, I, it'd probably be too far to say that she's gaslighting Connor, but she really does eke out the, the friendship moments and uses them against him. And you also, you present one of my favourite ironies of superhero narratives where you have supposedly invulnerable beings who are actually, in the central narrative, the most fragile, the most likely yeah. to be lost to the story. So, what, yeah. did, what did that fantasy element bring to your ability to discuss these ideas of loss and this, this aftermath and dealing with loss? I, all of my works are about loss. It is, I think it's a side effect of my best friend passing away when I was in high school. Ever since then, try as I might, I am constantly wrestling with loss in my work and um, it's, whether it's because I need counselling or just because that just something slipped a switch in me and that is just, it's something, it's a theme that I'm drawn to time and time again. Mm. And, you know, with the monuments themselves, when we meet them in the first book, I, I loved the idea of them being super strong but also weak as piss. Mm. 
Like, you know, and I love the idea of playing a lot of their death for laugh and then pass off. Um, and that was to sort of show that all these people that we think are super powerful, you know, their, their grip on power is tenuous at best. And, um, they've held on to it too long. It was, it was itself a story about, you know, passing on power to those people who want to enact positive change rather than sort of, you know, concentrating at the top and it getting rusted on. Um, and I loved their sort of fragility and that loss. But Connor is spending the entire first book running. He is running away from his grandfather, who is um, who is on the let's say on the way out, and you know, he, and he's running away from his friendship divorce. And so that loss, you know, he's he's learning throughout the first book to confront that loss and to come to terms with it and, you know, to do what he can, you know, as he's losing something to make the most of it. And in terms of Sally, I wanted to look at what loss can sometimes inspire us to do. And it's, if you look at the entire story, you know, I'll try to talk about this without, um, without giving stuff away, but all of the problems in the first book are caused by decisions the teenagers made. If Sally had better processed her loss, then the entire story would not have happened. And it was just about how grief can drive us to do positive things, but it can also drive us to do destructive things. And she's learning to, she then sort of goes into that mode where it's like, you know what, I've lost something. I don't want to lose anything anymore. So I'm not going to build anything anymore. And so in the first book is very much about her sort of, she sometimes lets Connor in and then she pushes him away instantly. The second book, she lets her guard down more and more. And it's about her sort of coming into herself and moving past that grief and there is a metaphor of, you know, when you're a god, you are suddenly ageless. And so she is literally stunted and she's, she doesn't grow from that point. And then sort of the story happens and I won't sort of spoil where it ends up. But I am endlessly fascinated by grief and every time, I and mean, this was the funny thing was, this was me starting a book thinking, I'm not going to write about grief. I'm not going to write about death. It has the most death in it of any of my books, and it is the most concerned with grief. Um, and it's something that has revealed itself to me as I wrote it and then as I've considered it in the years since. It's interesting also, the you, as you were talking there, very much it, it depends on the lens we put on the world and the way we invest power depends on how we see that power even even if as you point out with the monuments something may seem all powerful but also be weak as piss and i mean our mm. adolescence is the time that we are also we fall victim to those lenses that we're most pressured to be something in scare quotes and mostly mm. this comes from the gaze of others the way they see us yeah. um i thought a really interesting illustration that you gave of this was in um, the character of pete and the idea of the hounds mm. who are supposedly these malevolent creatures but you know pete just wants to deliver pizza and i, yeah. I wanted to ask then how how destructive 
is this idea of destiny or even just that amorphous notion that we've all heard at some point of living up to our potential. Yeah. And it's not even that. It's, it's that Pete had inherited, you know, this generational conflict mm. and he didn't even know why he was supposed to hate who he hated. Like that part of the message hadn't sort of come through. Mm. Everything else had. And he felt the weight. He was basically Hamlet. He had been told, hey, go do this thing. And he completely crumbled under the weight of that task. And, you know, I wanted to look at that and I wanted to, you know, not that my novels are didactic, but I wanted to sort of show sort of teenagers and readers that, you know, you choose who you want to be. Like, you know, somebody can tell you to do something, but you you are the one who has to do it and live with it. So make sure that you believe in what it is that you are doing. And the... The inspiration for Pete came from, I remember, and in terms of like sort of, you know, inheriting sort of conflicts, I went to school and the first friend that I made in primary school was Turkish. And so I come home as a Greek kid. I'm like, oh, hey, this is my friend. His name is Mark. And then, you know, it sounds like a very Anglo name. So that sort of, you know, that gets the seal of approval. Then, you know, my grandmother meets his mom and she's the most Turkish woman you have ever met. (laughs) And suddenly it's like, oh, what the hell? And I remember we became close very, very quickly and our families became very, very close very quickly. And it's it's really funny how quickly that sort of, oh, the Turks are bad and we believe that because we're Greek, how quickly that dissipated, like, the moment we understood each other. And because, you know, Mark had no idea that he wasn't supposed to like Greek people and I had no idea that I wasn't supposed to like Turkish people. And sort of our families had to very quickly sort of come to the table and now they're our closest family friends. Um, So I find things like that endlessly fascinating. And, like, we spend so much time fighting over really stupid stuff that the big important stuff we kind of set aside and we don't deal with. And so I would love it if we spent less time distracting ourselves with the, let's say, arguments and conflicts that our parents and our grandparents sort of carried with them. And there are so many conflicting things inside us that that complicate that. And I think that was that was a really tenuous segue to my next question, which is around the idea of the rebel <laughs> gods. Because of course, of course, the rebel gods are coming for Connor, Sally, and Lockie, and they embody human characteristics that we all have: love, fear, yeah. hunger. Or we've lost hunger, but um, in the in the narrative, um, yeah. is the clash between these gods? I guess our own personal struggles writ large. And I wonder then if, if it is, what are we to make of the threat that they pose and this potential end of the world that they represent? And look, there, there was, there were always designed that there was, there was such a fine line between sort of love and fear because, you know, you could do the same action that you do because you love someone you could do because you feared losing them. Mm. Does that make sense? And so I wanted to make sure that, you know, I looked at these sort of primal drives, which were based on, 
you know, they, it was never my intent to be like, oh no, don't give into these things because it was, I designed them based on how we evolved. And so it was, um, I think they call it the S, um, which is, uh, it's our, what inspired us to evolve was these, these influences and these, they sort of guided the way that humanity and nature itself and animals sort of came to arrive at the point that we see them now. Mm. And so I was never saying, you know, sort of don't dive too deep into these, but it was more, you know, it was more a conversation about free will. And these are gods who take away our free will. And yes, you could probably make the world better if you could control everyone and reach a particular outcome. But if one person or being has that control, is the world actually better? And so that was where I was taking that. And that was where sort of these gods, that's where their sort of, their control, love and fear was just their way of, controlling people but I did want to make sure that it felt deeply human and that we could see ourselves in the villain even if we obviously wouldn't act like that. There's a moment in the book that I'm going to be vague about again for spoilers but where Connor, (laughs) Connor is presented with the idea of a world of love and mm. it has that nice sort of prima facie ring to it. And, and I immediately went back away, Connor, because I think <laughs> in, our, in our brains, in our deep brains, a part of us uh, knows and we hear every day about all the atrocities that are actually committed so in, in the so-called name of love from, you know, yep. domestic violences to, you know, violences writ large where people supposedly love their own um, and that makes yeah. them them hate others. Um, and I just the tensions that you played with there were just brilliant, brilliant. I loved them. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> You're making me feel very smart. I'm enjoying this immensely. <laughs> <laughs> now I've been I've been hitting you with all sorts of philosophical questions, Will, and I think mm-hmm. these books do that. They play. They're, they're very playful with these ideas, but they they take them seriously and. Finally, the big question um, that I've been building up to, the one that everyone's asking, actual survey numbers are not available, but I assure you everyone is asking this, the fantasy genre is famous for its trilogies. Monuments is touted as a duology, but is it really? Is it? Well, look, it's been very upfront. If it becomes the next sort of greatest best-selling series, then you bet there are going to be eight books in this. There are going to be, you know, Series upon series upon series, like I am going to milk this like a dead horse. Mm. But uh, that was, I mixed so many metaphors then, but we're going to ignore that. I'm a good writer and words are my job. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, farmer, if you're out there milking dead horses, but. Um. <laughs> <laughs> now, the main thing is, I, I come at it from sort of my experiences. While I would love to write the bleak middle chapter of, you know, a trilogy that ends on a cliffhanger and all that sort of stuff. I am too afraid of getting hit by a bus between like while I'm writing a book. And so I'm just like, you know, there's that relief when you send everything off and it's done. If I committed to like seven or eight books, like if I George R. R. Martined it and people were on my back all day, every day to get a book done, that pressure probably not conducive to me doing good work. And I would be too, 
too scared to leave the house and leave it unfinished. And so my ideal sort of model for a fantasy series is Terry Pratchett's Discworld, where you can jump in for one book and you can leave again and it feels whole. So while I think there is, there's a lot of connective tissues, probably more connective tissue than I would like between the two books, and it's why I think they're read best as a set of two, I didn't want to then extend that out to three books because just the pressure of, oh, God, I've got to get this done. Oh, I've got to keep building this. I I don't think I'm cut out for it. Saying that, you know, give me a week before I announce my trilogy. But I also, as a reader, I love stories that don't overstay their welcome. And people who have read my sort of contemporary novels and even those who read the end of Rebel Gods, it's, it's not something where the ending holds your hand. It's I like a really fun, punchy, abrupt ending. The story's over. Everything's there that helps it make sense. Goodbye. Um, and I'd rather leave with people asking me, hey, would you consider writing a third book? Then leave while people are like, oh, we saw Rise of Skywalker. That was unpleasant. <laughs> so um, I'd much rather, it was demanded by the story. So I wanted to look at the two different kinds of gods. The first book deals with the gods who are very hands-off, and the second book deals with the gods that are very hands-on. I could revisit this world. I think there's a lot you could do, even in the prequel space, but stories that are happening at the same time. I would love it if, you know, and Aboriginal sort of writer read monuments and was like, Will, I want to take Lockie's story in, you know, another direction. I would be like, here are the rights, go for it, you know, use this sort of story and make it your own. And I think there are opportunities to build a wider world within sort of this monuments universe. But at the same time, I'm really proud of what I achieved and the story that it told and I'm thrilled that I wrote an ending that I think sticks to landing. So I don't really want to jinx it by sort of returning without something that matches or exceeds it. I don't think we could have asked for a better answer to that question. Will, I am speaking with Will Kostakis. We are we have been discussing both Monuments and Rebel Gods. Rebel Gods is, of course, the second book in the duology. But do you know what? This is the perfect time of year to be buying books. So go and buy both of them and read them. Will, thank you so much for taking the time coming on Final Draft. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. That is it for part two of my great conversation with Will Kostakis. Will's new novel is Rebel Gods. It is part two of his duology that started with Monuments and it's out now through Lothian. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has listened along this year. If you've made it this far in the podcast, you are a true fan. This is my last scheduled episode for the year. So I wish you a a great summer if you're in Australia, winter if you're on the other side of the planet. Thank you so much wherever you're listening around the world. It has been a huge pleasure to bring Australian books and Australian authors to your ears all year. I am already planning 2021. There are some incredible titles coming out and I really am looking forward to sharing them with you as long as some, uh, as long, along with some other ideas that I have to help you explore a little bit more of Australia's literary culture. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next year 
with more great conversations from Final Draft. And whatever you're doing over that intervening time, I hope it involves some good reading. Bye for now.